CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. We're back for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I appreciate you all joining us again uh, on another rather somber day as we uh, continue to watch uh, the uh, protests, the, in some cases, a small group of people in cities around the country uh, looting, uh, vandalizing. Uh, in some cases, police are being shot at, uh, having cars driven into them. Uh, and then we had President Trump last night uh, having uh, federal troops clear Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House uh, using flash bombs, using tear gas, uh, where peaceful demonstrators were standing and protesting uh, the George Floyd shooting so the president could go across the street for a picture uh, in front of the uh, church at Lafayette Square. We're going to talk about all of that and a lot more on the show today. Um, before we do, I just want to say that um, you, I am so grateful to you that you're continuing to send me your emails, your notes, talking to me about how you're dealing with life right now. You know, for weeks and weeks on end, I got notes from you about how you were dealing with um, the pandemic. And um, now those notes are turning more and more into your commentaries on what you're seeing happen in the country, and certainly here in the state of Georgia, in regard to the protests, the demonstrations, and your feelings about racial justice. So I, I encourage you to keep writing to me. I, I do try to get back to virtually all of you. takes me a little while sometimes, but just write me at bnigat at gpb.org because I, I really want to know how you're doing. All right, that said, we have a wonderful panel today. I'm very happy to be able to introduce them. Uh, Tamar Hellerman, the senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my Tuesday partner. And Tamar, I'm very happy you're here. How are you holding up? How's your new dog? <laughs> She's all right. She's in on the couch right by me. Thanks for having me, Bill. <laughs> All right. Tamar got a shelter-in-place dog a few weeks ago, and we're very happy for her. We're also joined today, I'm glad to say, um, by uh, two of the women who made a seat at the table, the GPB Emmy-nominated television show, Such Compelling Viewing, a show which focused on African-American women and how they viewed the world around them, a real rarity in media today. Uh, and the two we are lucky enough to have today are uh, Monica Pearson from 1975 until you finally decided it was time to retire, what, 2012, I think? Monica, you were the, the undisputed uh, top anchor, the person who uh, people in North Georgia turned to first to hear the news. So it's a delight. Uh, and of course, a delight to have you here. But of course, we know also, Monica, that one of the things that marked your entire career was your deep commitment to being involved with the community, which has not stopped at all in your retirement. Thanks for joining us, Monica. Thanks for inviting me, Bill. It's always good to work with you. <laughs> Yeah, we spent a lot of time. We spent more than 20 years working together over yes, a channel, too. Um, 
And you, we're also delighted to have Christine White with us, another major part of a seat at the table. Uh, Christine is an attorney. She served as a prosecutor in the Fulton County uh, District Attorney's Office. She now has her own law firm and uh, the White Legal Strategy Group. Uh, but Christine, you too are an activist. You have worked on social justice, economic empowerment, particularly in African-American communities. You founded at least one organization, if not more than one, Christine, with that specific focus, and um, been a longtime uh, lawyer in entertainment industry and uh, have worked in, in helping the entertainment industry, uh, people that you've represented, represented, I think it's fair to say, uh, look at how they can be involved in economic empowerment. Is that a fair introduction? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. I appreciate it. Yeah. We're also joined by Karen Owen, professor of political science at West Georgia University. And Karen, we're really happy to have you back. Thank you for being here today as well. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to start uh, with giving you all my impression of, of two separate events one that took place yesterday in Minneapolis, the other that took place right here in Atlanta, that I found so deeply moving, um, and I want to get your response to them. Um, the first was yesterday afternoon, many of you saw that Terrence Floyd, the younger brother of George Floyd, for the first time visited the scene where his older brother was killed uh, by Minneapolis police. And although there's been a lot of attention focused on the way in which he spoke very passionately to the crowd saying, please, no violence, um, this should be peaceful, my brother would have wanted the, the demonstrations to be peaceful, I thought even more moving than that was the video when, when Terrence first arrived and saw the spot where his brother died, his knees literally buckled. He collapsed on the street, and we could hear him it's in a very intimate moment, saying out loud, calling out to his deceased mother, to, to George, saying, please help me. Please help me. I need you. And I found that so deeply moving and, and so sad. And then yesterday afternoon, watching the uh, news conference um, with the students who we're going to talk a lot about, uh, Messiah Young uh, from Morehouse College and Tania Pilgrim uh, from Spellman, who were rousted out of their car, tasered and arrested on Saturday night, watching them talk about how surreal that entire experience felt to them. And that, too, was deeply moving to me. Um, Monica, let me ask you first. Uh, talk to me about how you responded to those events. When I saw Terrence Floyd literally drop to his knees, my heart dropped. Uh, in that moment, I think for everyone, the anguish of what that family is going through. But it's the same anguish we're seeing uh, from the family of Breonna Taylor in Louisville, Kentucky, which is my home, where there's the same kinds of demonstrations going on and where the police chief was just fired because his men weren't using body cams and someone was killed by a police officer again. And then, you know, I think of Ahmaud Aubrey, his family. It's just all of those rushed into my head. 
And I will admit to you, my eyes got misty. For the two young people, they will be scarred for life. Um, it will be hard for them to trust anyone in a uniform. It's going to take a while for them to get through that. And I'm going to tell you my first reaction, which was, um, and Christine will laugh because she knows me, uh, that as a mother, my first reaction was, why in the world did you have to take your behind out that time of night to go get some food? Don't you know what's going on downtown? And then I stepped back as a mother and said, well, you do have the right to do that. You weren't protesting. You were driving to get something to eat. Was it past the curfew? And my heart just went out to you. I can still hear that child screams in my head when she was, you know, saying, I'm getting out, I'm getting out. Both of those officers needed to be fired and needed to be fired immediately, no matter what the police union says. So both of those events, I'm still living with them and still not settled with them. Yeah, I feel the, the same way as a as a new resident of Atlanta. I moved down here in, in December. Um, and just to see kind of what's, what's happening downtown and to all of these young people who are, you know, going out sometimes to, to just live their lives and, and how, especially if you're young and you're black, you, you can't trust that, um, you know, it's going to, you know, you can return safely. And that's, that's a heartbreaking thing to see um, going on today. Christine? Yeah, I, it's interesting because I have heard and read about the events, but I try not to watch them. I, I just can't watch. I can't watch the tasing of the two students. I can't even watch um, the visceral reaction of um, anyone going through the type of pain of losing someone as close to them as a brother or a sister or a child. Um, and I definitely can't watch the, um, the, the videos of it happening, even the photos um, send me into shock. And I, I grew up, I remember growing up um, watching renditions and, um, and shows that reflected the anguish and the pain that folks experienced during um, enslavement during um, Jim Crow. And at some point in my childhood, I, be, I just became so traumatized by um, even the stories of hearing from my grandmother and from my father of, um, of the type of race-based violence that they experienced and that they witnessed that I, I can't even watch it. And so I walk with that pain often, but it's hard for me to watch. I, I really understand that. I shared a note with uh, an exchange of notes with Deneen Milner, who was the third partner on your show, A Seat at the Table, and couldn't be with us today. And she said very much what you're saying, Christine, to me. She said she was still in such pain, and she did not want to watch the George Floyd video. She did not want to watch the Ahmad Arbery uh, video. She didn't want to watch the tasing of the students. Um, and I agreed with her. I. And yet they're shoved in our faces every day by media or people posting them on on social uh, uh, forums. And uh, it, 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 Karen, I just find it I, so terribly difficult to watch. But I wonder, Karen, if a certain way I have an obligation to watch. So I think, you know, when you started this, I 
again, felt all these emotions bubbling up in me because, like, if you hear it and don't see it, then you think one way, or if you see it visually, then you are, you know, responding and reacting to that. And, you know, in the first instance, when the brother spoke, I think for me, you know, I was crying, I was upset because we've all experienced death. People have experienced it differently, um, whether it's traumatic or just someone in their family. But, you know, we know what it's like to go and visit where someone has died and the emotion that that brings. And so when he fell, I think it showed the, you know, the human side that all of us have felt emotionally towards that. As a professor, the incidents with the two college students is really hard for me because I visualize those were two of my students. And, and they were just being young individuals going out to enjoy their night, to get that food. Of course, you know, as a young person, we, we probably all remember back, we don't think about all the consequences of what we're doing or the actions going around us, and we just want to be in that moment, and there they were. And I think Monica hit the point very, you know, clearly that this will traumatize and be with them and as a community, we have to help them. And I think about for, you know, me on the college campus, when students return, we have to give them the space to talk about it, to understand and work with them, to, that we are, you know, supportive of them and, and want to hear what they have to say. Bill? You know, uh, Christine, I thought about, yeah, go ahead, Monica. Uh, I just wanted to throw something in here that I'd love to hear from Christine, because Christine has a, a daughter who just graduated from high school and is headed to Spelman, I think. And the young woman yeah. who was in that incident uh, is a Spelman student. Now, my daughter's 40, so it's like I knew she was safe at home. Not a problem. <laughs> but <laughs> as a mother of a young woman about to go off to college, how did you handle this with karma? I I am shocked by my reaction. I um I grew up as an activist. I grew up marching um in the streets from everything from um when someone was injured by police officers um where I grew up or just to have um Columbus Day um not be a holiday. We 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 were activists about everything and I was very outgoing and very outspoken. And my first reaction was to call my daughter and say, you are not to leave the house. She's with her dad this week. And I said, you are not to, but under any circumstances, go out of the house. And, and I felt um, conflicted about that. Uh, she is 18 years old. She is, um, has a very um, keen sensibility around what is happening. She's developing her own views. And I am shocked that I did not have the same desire for her to go out and become active. And even a friend of mine whose son goes to Morehouse, I called him as well and said, do not leave home. Um, and, and so I, I, I still am struggling with how I feel about it. I saw um, many um, allies white folks out there protesting. And that to me has been so moving because it really um, highlights to me how privilege can be used in a way that is um, effective and that can teach us all that we do not have to um, succumb 
to this racist history of our country, there is something we can do about it. And these children are really stepping up. But it, it was very, it's very hard for me to think about um, my child out there, I have to admit. <laughs> you know, I, I want to throw something in about that. And, and then I want to play something for you tomorrow and get you to respond to it. But Christine, my my daughter is now 23 years old, and she's come home from her apartment in Brooklyn to shelter in place with us here in Atlanta, and has been here for a few months. And um, her social awakening around what's happening on the streets has been extraordinary uh, to watch. And uh, she is literally every day looking at organizations that she can make small donations to help in some way. She's talking with it about her friends. It really does feel to me that uh, this is a very different moment in time. But it also reminds me uh, that maybe she is her father's daughter because I was an activist in the 60s. For me, it was Vietnam. For her, it will now be racial justice. And and I think maybe that we are finding a, a, a moment in time when things can change. I want to talk more about that in a minute. But um, you went to uh, Spelman too, Christine, and Tamara, I want to play a little sound from the news conference that was held yesterday with uh, the attorneys for uh, Messiah and Tanaya uh, and with uh, people from both Spelman and Morehouse. Let's start by listening to the president of Spelman, Mary Schmidt Campbell. And what she recounted was one of the most harrowing experiences I've ever heard. And after I put down the phone, I was totally shaken by that and outraged and angry. Talking about her conversation uh, with Miss Pilgrim, uh, who recounted to her what had happened. And then uh, we got to hear a little bit from both Messiah Young and Tanaya Pilgrim. Let's listen uh, first to her and then to him. I'm sorry you guys even had to see something like that occur. Like, it's disgusting. And like... That's, that's all I have to say. This isn't just about me. This isn't just about us. This is an entire generation that has to deal with brutality and injustice and wrongdoing for nothing. Um, Tamar, the original video, which led uh, the chief of police, Erica Shields, and uh, Mayor Bottoms to summarily fire the two officers who they uh, saw as most responsible for this incident, um, was hard enough to look at. But yesterday, when we saw body cam footage from seven different angles, it became truly horrifying the way in which that whole thing unfolded, including on, on, on audio from one of them, hearing him say, we're not being tough enough um, we've got to get tougher, essentially. I'm not quoting exactly, but that's what one of the cops was essentially saying tomorrow. Yeah, and I, I wanted to piggyback off something you and, and Christine were saying. I, I do think that this is an inflection point. This is a, a turning point, especially for, for my generation. I'm a millennial. Um, you know, I, I've been living in D.C. the last decade, and of course there were Black Lives Matter protests, but, but this moment feels different. It does feel like all of a sudden a lot of my white friends are, are waking up and realizing we, you know, they, they, you know, do want to stand up and, um, you know, talk about it, address the issue, um, direct their money to, to places, read, read important works. But 
none of this will matter if, if folks don't vote. And it's something that you see, you know, you saw Mayor Bottom speak about it at her press conferences. You've seen politicians talk about um, but making sure that, that folks remember to do this in November. That's going to be a, a real challenge for folks. Young people in general have problems, you know, maintaining political enthusiasm. And, and when I look at it, you know, we're still five months out from an election. Will that anger still, you know, will all of this still resonate in November where change can actually be effective. Karen, um, I know you're, you know, go ahead, Monica. I agree with uh, you completely. And that's what I keep wanting to say to every young person who's out there is that it's, it's good to march to protest, but I need you to march and fill out that census form because that will determine what kind of representation we have. We're underrepresented all over the country. I want to see you march to the voter registration office. I want to see you then march on June 9th and vote. Um, Because to me, I agree with you, unless you follow it up with voting, because it's everything from the district attorney on up, this will mean nothing. And I'm hoping, as you said, that your generation will understand the power of the vote. People died so that you could not only have the right to protest, but most importantly, so you could vote and change legislation. And that's what worries me, to be honest, that by November, even by June 9th, even though we may still be out there protesting, how many of those protesters are going to vote on June 9th or have already gotten their ballot? I filled out my ballot over three weeks ago, but how many of them have done that? You know, Karen, that Monica makes an interesting point. I, I was watching some uh, coverage over the weekend and uh, of a protest, and uh, an interviewer was talking to a student, a young person, I would guess in early 20s, and, and she said, what more can we do? Now we, we finally have to turn to protest, to sitting in on the streets. Uh, she excused the vandalism to some extent because she felt it was calling attention to the problems that African-Americans have faced for 400 years. Um, but she, she said something that I think is worth unpacking. She said, we already vote, and went on to list other things they do. But unfortunately, Karen, that isn't the case. Uh, many of the young people in the street, and we're talking about it now, if you look back at the 2016 election, it was the youngest voters who were most un- underrepresented at the polls. Right, Karen? That is true. And if you look across, you know, the research, uh, young people are the ones who do not turn out to vote. Older people are more likely to vote and understand the power of that vote. You know, talking to students in my classes over the last 12 years that I have taught, I have heard so much about, well, I don't think my voice will be heard and I can't change the system with my vote. I want to see another opportunity to change. And so I think that we, you know, we spend a lot of time in the classroom talking about conventional political action, which is uh, voting or donating to a campaign or donating money to a cause or volunteering, and then those unconventional ways that we politically get involved, which is protesting. And there's a lot of angst against the idea that protesting is a way to make change, because if protest turns violent then you have a backfire of what your message was to be, you know, given or taken seriously. And so we talk to the students, and, and I think 
students, some of them are active and have voted and haven't seen their vote change who's in elective office or change policy. So in some of these cities, I think we have to look at that they have been um, controlled by one party, uh, whether it's the Democrats in some areas or if you're in suburbia and it's been controlled by Republicans like here in Georgia, but that hasn't changed often enough for students to see that when you do move an elected official out of office and bring in new faces and new people at the table, then that can bring about change that they desire. I think one thing I'm hoping to see is not only that students get active and voting, but they take the mantle that they too can run for office. If you get to the point where you're 21 or you're 25, lay the groundwork needed so that you can become the public official that makes that change. One thing I'm also curious to see, you know, we talked about how turnout for young people has been low in presidential elections. I'm going to be curious if this sparks um, a lot more attention on the local level, young people paying attention to local mm -hmm. politics, which is even harder for, for young people to, to penetrate. It's one thing to talk about how much you love or hate Donald Trump or, or Joe Biden, but a lot of these local issues like police forces, who's, you know, who's leading a, a city, all of those are, are further down the ballot. And I think sometimes um, it's not as cool to, to keep up with stuff like that, to go to city council meetings or, or follow what the mayors are doing or police chiefs, but that's going to be important too. All right, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and uh, come back with more with this uh, just great uh, panel to talk about what's happening in the cities of Georgia and across the country today. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Tamar Hallerman, Christine White, Monica Pearson, uh, and Karen Owen joining me today. You know, I was reflecting on our show yesterday um, in which we talked a lot about the systemic problems that really are at the root of everything that seems to be taking place in the country today. Of course, George Floyd. Of course, Ahmaud uh, Arbery and the others. Uh, Brianna in uh, Louisville uh, have sparked this, but it goes much, much deeper to systemic problems. But what's interesting is I suddenly, as I thought about the show yesterday, I thought, gee, the word racism only came up once or twice. Um, Monica, I want to start with you on this. You know, your story in, in Atlanta has had the happiest of possible endings. But when you came here, many people already know this, but it's worth repeating. But when you came here in 1975, the first African-American female anchor in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, a city too busy to hate, uh, you faced extraordinary challenges. You, you certainly can speak to how difficult it can be to overcome the stereotypes about race. Well, first, let me give you a correction. Jocelyn Dorsey was actually the first African-American woman to oh. anchor the news right. in Atlanta, Georgia. I, uh, she was doing the news Of course show. she was. Yes. And I was the first to go on the Bread and Butter show, the 6 o'clock news. 
and I caught hell. There's no other way to put it. Um, I had white people calling in telling me that I was too black. I had black people calling in telling me I wasn't black enough, that I needed to have a fro. Uh, Whatever I said, I had people telling me that uh, I didn't know my place. And it was very difficult. But my mother told me something when I left Louisville. She said, no one may love you there, but you can win them over slowly but surely by being who you are and being involved in the community. So that's when I started literally going to every school, every church, and literally every synagogue (laughs) and speaking, Mm -hmm. participating in judging contests so people got to know who I was. Now, that's not to say that everyone liked me. I still have people who can't me for various reasons because they think they know what my political views are and after being on a seat at the table they definitely do <laughs> but it was not easy it was not easy um but in the same vein because of the support of my co-anchor john pruitt we were able to show on the air how we could work together And we were a team. And I think in many instances, John says it, and I believe it, is that we help to smooth the road in some ways. Because after um, I went on the air on the 6th, within two or three years, all the TV stations had an integrated um, (laughs) anchor team. But before they put me on the 6th, there had never been a woman nor a person of color on the 6 o'clock news. It wasn't easy, but it was worth it. Uh, I tell people the story you told about mm-hmm. when you went to Forsyth County, I think it was, during a rally, <laughs> and a yes, Klansman yes. told you to tell me hello. <laughs> yeah. That's absolutely true. I, a, a, a guy uh, who was definitely a Klansman came up to me at the big Forsyth March back in, what, 1990, whatever year that was, and uh Said, oh, uh, your channel too. Tell you got to tell Monica she's my favorite anchor. Christine, um, you know what Monica t- said here is really important, uh, and and it reflects something I think that we heard from Chris Stewart, who's one of the lawyers who's going to work to represent the young people, uh, and and is also working on the with the Arbery family on the uh, a case down in Glynn County. He, and, and he made this point yesterday in this news conference that he thinks people's eyes are being opened. He said it's really an act of God that we're now starting to have our eyes open. And, and the reason I think about that now, Christine, is Monica said it. It was a white guy, John Pruitt, who was willing mm-hmm. to stand up and actually risk to some extent a reputation he was already, had already built. He was already a very well thought of uh, a newsman here. Um, and and so it, it does say something to us, I think, about the fact that we do have to call on all of us, regardless of race, to get involved in this fight. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, I, we are incredibly grateful and um, blessed to have had the convergence of an, an incredible anchor like Monica Pearson, and, um, and uh, her partner, Mr. Pruitt, and all of the things that came together to, ha- to make this opportunity for her, her to be beloved in a city that um, has had racial division for so long. But that does not happen all the time. And I will say that I know, because I work with Monica, that she is exceptional <laughs> and amazing. And, and there are spaces and places where um, 
folks who are maybe not quite as exceptional, maybe not quite as um, as talented, but but have value are marginalized and and pushed away because of racism in a way that they shouldn't be. It, it's funny because um, I, I will misquote him, but uh, Chris Rock always says, you know, yeah, there are amazing um, black celebrities and really talented folks who have made it, quote unquote. But what about the rest of us who are just normal? Like, and, and why should we have such um, uh, issues with with obtaining opportunity or even maintaining our safety? And all of that is not just about personal racism, racism, it's about systemic racism. And I know it's really hard for some folks who don't experience it to have an appreciation for how um, race has really been sewn into the very fabric of every institution and every policy and every place that um, that America stands up a system. But it, it, it truly, truly is. And I, I heard Brene Brown say um, one time that, you know, compassion is an ability to, to see someone else's experience. And if you can't see someone else's experiences, the best thing you can do is believe them. And when you hear Black folks telling you that not just them, but their mothers and their fathers have experienced racism in big and little ways their entire lives, and that it has affected the way that they, they um, operate in the world and the opportunities that come to them and the danger that they are put in place, you have to believe them and stop arguing with them because that is not your perspective. Um, Amen. I, I, kind of pick, <laughs> picking up on yeah, picking up on that. Uh, I want to talk for a few minutes about uh, uh, Mayor Bottoms. We we didn't really talk much about her on the show yesterday, um, but uh, Karen, uh, she has you know she, it's interesting. Mayor Bottoms is the first one to acknowledge and has on a number of occasions since uh, she got the spotlight first around COVID-19 and and now around the uh, uh, protests and and, uh, the death of George Floyd that uh, she has a lot of critics out there. She's been very open about that. Um, But she's had a a moment in time where she has stepped up. She gained enormous uh, national attention on Friday night when she uh, gave uh, remarks uh, from her heart, aimed at the protesters who she was afraid were beginning to loot and burn, which, of course, they were. Let's listen to just a little of those remarks, and then I want to get everybody to comment on it. But start with you on that, Karen. I am a mother to four black children in America, one of whom is 18 years old. And when I saw the murder of George Floyd, I hurt like a mother would hurt. And on yesterday, when I heard there were rumors about violent protests in Atlanta, I did what a mother would do. I called my son and I said, where are you? I said, I cannot protect you and black boys shouldn't be out today. So you're not going to out-concern me and out-care about where we are in America. I wear this each and every day, and I pray over my children each and every day. Karen? I mean, her words are very powerful, and it's hard to kind of follow what she said, but... 
I think that Mayor Bottom struck the right tone that was needed at that point where she showed vulnerability. She showed the concern that she had as a mother, but then she showed leadership where she had individuals around her to speak when she gave a decisive tone as to, you know, this is not Atlanta, this is chaos ensuing. And for those who are bringing this on, you know, for everyone to go home and to do the right thing. And, you know, I just want to kind of say that women politicians have a difficult time because they're always caught in this double bind of showing how to be feminine, that emotion, compassion comes out, but then they have to be strong and in many ways very masculine to be the, the leader. And I think Mayor Bottoms did this in three days extremely well, showing the compassion, nurturing, I'm with you, I hear you, but then by Sunday saying, the chief and I have seen videos and we are acting. We are not going to stand by. We are going to be swift in our decision-making. And I think that we, as a community, need to recognize how well she's done in this. Yeah, I mean, I, I really um, commend Mayor Bottoms for, for her leadership. Uh, but I, I also have to say, and I think that it's really important as journalists that we put the events into context that we know from experience that when people gather and with that, when they're angry or even when they're even excited, maybe let's say after a Super Bowl game or an NBA final or a World Series game, that glass will be broken, that things will burn, that swords will be looted. It happens all the time. And we appreciate it as a part of this context of American culture. We have a word for it. It's called spectator vandalism. It's called groupthink. And, um, and, and so I, I just think that it's important that we do not overshadow that element that happens in peaceful protests as if that is the purpose or the eventual outcome of a peaceful, of the folks who are um, protesting, because that is not their, um, most times that's not what they want to happen. And what we see is that in every group, there are some folks who, who cause mischief. And there are some folks who mess up. And I think that Mayor Bottoms was really speaking to the folks around the folks who are causing mischief to set a tone that we will not accept this. And I think that that has happened as we have seen even more people um, gather than usually gather after a Super Bowl game or after an NBA series. We actually, in theory, should have seen more vandalism. But the truth is that the protesters created a tone of peace that um, that uh, I think permeated permeated a lot of spaces, and in some spaces it was overcome by the force of the police, and in some spaces it was overcome by bad actors. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, for people who were not able to listen to our show yesterday, I do want to point out we spent a lot of time talking about not creating false equivalencies. Uh, there is, you know, the vandalism and the uh, destructiveness was uh, in cities around the country, including here, was uh, uh, the work of a small group of people. It should not eclipse the fact that most people were out uh, protesting peacefully. But even more important, Tamar Hallerman, it should not eclipse the violence uh, against black men particularly, but certainly in Louisville, a black woman. And we can't allow that to happen uh, tomorrow. 
At the same time, I mean, you have people like President Trump, who in his conference call with governors yesterday was urging them to crack down and suggesting that he may use a law that's more than 200 years old to send the military to come in and, and crack down on folks. And you've seen Mayor Bottoms go on national television to, to fight back against that and, and you know, where she has gotten criticism is that she, she hasn't been able to control all of this. Like, she's able to control all of these people in the streets. But, um, you know, you, you look at the city of Atlanta's Twitter account and, and you see what, what they posted last night, which was a, a video of Atlanta police officers kneeling in front of protesters, um, you know, to, to show their solidarity. So um, you see Mayor Bottoms trying to, trying to thread the needle there, and I think she's, she's done a pretty good job so far. Monica, why don't you weigh in on this? I mean, because it is certainly true that when she became mayor, there were people who uh, said, gee, we hope she's up to this task. And she she knows that she faced uh, concerns about that all along. But she is having her moment. She is having her moment. But I'm going to throw a little bit of a monkey wrench in here. And that has to, and that's because I live with a man who was in law enforcement for 30 years, uh, over 30 years. And that is they should have been ready for the violence that occurred. As Christine said, uh, it always, you always have a few bad actors and you always have after some events this happened. And the fact that the uh, police chief said, you know, I'm not gonna have an arrest fest. Well, that was like, to some people, oh good, I can do whatever I wanna do versus handling it. Then the next day after the, the, the riots, cause those were riots, those were not protests. Those were riots that occurred. Then saying, well, we're going to crack down, um, that we were caught off guard. You shouldn't have been caught off guard. You always plan for the worst and the best. And that concerned me. It seemed as if there had been no real planning around the eventuality. And that, 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 I think, is bad for her as well as the police chief. However, I think they redeemed themselves through the incident with the young students. But again, when you know the governor was ready, he knew. So the intel on um, social media was letting you know something was going to happen. We lost 20 police cars. We got some policemen injured, all because of poor planning. Now how did your husband react police. to the? Uh, how did your <laughs> husband react to the summary uh, firing of the two uh, cops who were uh, who attacked uh, 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 the students? Well, I have to explain to you something about John. Uh, he really believed in what was going to be provided through the uh, 20th Century uh, Policing Task Force that President Obama initiated. And John says all the time, police should be held accountable the way they hold other people accountable. In other words, the man who put his, the chauvin, who put his knee on the neck of George Floyd uh, should have been arrested immediately. And the officers who were there should have been arrested immediately. Now, Christine's a lawyer. She can explain it better than I can. But John says if that had been you or I out there, and we committed a crime, not only would I be arrested, but because we didn't stop it, we would be arrested too. So he feels that it's important to for police officers 
instead of going through an internal investigation and all the steps they have to go to before they do something, that that they have to treat police officers who do wrong the same way regular citizens are treated when they break the law. So he thought it was a good move. He yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, I have I was am a former prosecutor and um, have sort of worked in in criminal justice. And I know that the criminal justice system is by design biased against black bodies. It, it always has been from the first sort of um, the folks who were who were uh, hired to round up um, attempts uh Slaves who are attempting to to leave um, and and to keep black bodies who were not um, being useful to the economy um, under control. It has always been a system of control. And though I know, having worked in that system, that there are good people who work in that system, the system itself is designed with a a harsh bias against black folks. And so, in the criminal justice system, we see all the time that. Um, Police officers are not held accountable. I mean, 99% of police officers who uh, kill a black person um, while they are under police custody, uh, there's no outcome for that. And so, and even when they are are um, fired, they are easily able to get another job down the road at another precinct. So there's no accountability just baked into the system that would keep this violence from happening. And and this is a place where we see that there is not any explicit racial policy that says black people have to be treated more harshly, but systemically there is a implicit racial bias. All right. Uh, with that, I've got to get to our final break of the show when we come back more on Political Rewind. To uh, the very best of my recollection, the last time we saw demonstrations literally across the country in cities large and small simultaneously was really in the aftermath of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. On the night that he was assassinated, Robert Kennedy was in Indianapolis for a campaign rally. There was a lot of uh, hostility and anger uh, in the crowd that he was going to speak to because we— I recall it well how angry African-Americans were and how, as a white person, I was not sure how to approach dealing with the subject. And I just want to read quickly. Here's, here's a, Kennedy was advised not to get up and speak in front of an angry crowd, but he did. And he said, you can be filled with bitterness, with hatred, and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in great polarization, black people among black white people among white filled with hatred toward one another, or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and to replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand with compassion and love. Is that a naive message, Monica Pearson? No, I don't think it is, not at all, because, you know, Dr. King also talked about uh, how much we are combined, we are, what was the word, inextricably connected, both black and white. So no, not at all. Not at all. Karen? I was just thinking about, you know, part of the message of the civil rights community and the movement was about the beloved community, and that's coming together. 
Um, I spoke to a very dear friend of mine who is an African-American male, went to college with him. And last night he sent me a message and he said, please know that the white community has got to speak and join with us. We have to move together to make progress and change. And that really hit me and it was important. And I think that's a message that we have to continue on and, and talk about. Christine? Yeah, I have not in my lifetime ever heard black people talk about wanting revenge. Um, restorative justice, may, may, uh, maybe reparations to be made whole, mm -hmm. acknowledgement of trauma, absolutely, but never revenge. And so the, the idea has always been that there is a place, there is a role, there is a path for us to mm -hmm. live in harmony with our full dignity and our full equity and our full understanding and appreciation for each other's differences without marginalization. And I absolutely believe that is possible. Tamara, I want to go back to a, a comment you made. Go ahead. No, um, you know, one thing I'm wondering is I see all of this, um, you know, anger in the streets. You see white people coming out and marching with black people right now, which which was something you didn't see as much during the initial Black Lives Matter protest, is, is how much this will actually change things in, in Washington especially. And and one thing I really haven't seen is is kind of a, a broader acknowledgement of, of kind of what needs to change on a national level. And And I'm curious if this resonates there and, and whether this will change the political debate. And, and I'm not seeing it so far. Well, Hank well Johnson, that's one of the questions. Go, go ahead, ahead, Monica. Well, Hank Johnson is, is actually working on a bill, and I think he's introduced it, that's going to deal specifically with police brutality. And, um, and that, I think, is a beginning. But to get back to our earlier comment, how do we get young people involved in the lobbying efforts to keep this going? What do we need to do to make them understand it's not us, except for you, Ms. Hallerman, who is a millennial, <laughs> to rally your friends to take it from the street into the city council? into their neighborhoods. How do we do that? I only see like well, a John Ossoff running. I see, you know, some young people, but I don't see enough. Well, I will say that the one of the benefits of being a little bit older is that you have the benefit of, of experience and you can compare what happens when you do participate and when you, when you don't. And that's what young people don't have is the benefit of experience. So we can't be too hard on them. What we know is that uh, voting is something that happens when resources and, and um, and energy is put towards it. And so we have got to put more resources and more energy into um, educating young folks, into engaging young folks at their level about the things that they care about. We have to invest in organizations that are getting out the vote, that are at the places that they want to be, and make it a part of their culture because we have forced so many other things into their culture, Coca-Cola and everything else, candy bars. So we have to put that same effort to putting voting in their culture. All right, Christine White, you get the last word on uh, today's show. I thank you so much, uh, Christine, Monica Pearson, Karen Owen, and Tamar Hallerman for a, uh, a meaningful conversation. I, I really appreciate your talking about difficult issues from your hearts. So thank you so much for being with us. And thank you all for uh, listening to today's show. Uh, we're back again, of course, tomorrow with another Political Rewind. We'll be, you know, the primary is next Tuesday, for goodness sake. So at some point, we're going to start integrating, going back and talking about 
uh, the politics of this week and next. We'll do all that and a lot more coming up on Political Rewind. Take care, everybody, and stay healthy.